Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz round his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone. Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. 
And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. When did you last feel really, really small? I can still remember my first day at secondary school when uh, I arrived and saw these sick formers that were looming over me like giants, thinking, how is it possible that I can be in a school with people who are that big? Maybe you've been on holiday and you have looked up at the sheer scale of creation. You've been at the foothills of the mountains in the Peak District or the Pyrenees or Perhaps you've even been blessed to get out to the Grand Canyon and you have looked down into depths that are as deep as two Snowdens in depth and 18 miles in width and just felt tiny. That's the kind of experience Daniel has in chapter 10. Daniel is reminded that he is very, very small. In verse 1, we are told that about two years have passed since his vision in chapter 9. And since that vision, Daniel's seen that vision begin to be fulfilled. If we had time, you could go to Ezra chapter 2 and you could see that 42,360 men, women, and children, they all returned to Jerusalem when Cyrus said they could. And about six, uh, sorry, seven months after they'd left, they'd been able to rebuild the altar in Jerusalem. About a year later, they'd been able to rebuild the foundations for the temple. All of the vision of Jeremiah and everything that we saw in Daniel in chapter 9, all of that started to be fulfilled. And at this time of year, if you look in chapter verse 4, Daniel tells us it's the first month of the year. Which means at this point in the year, the Jews are celebrating the Passover. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which for a Jew is a massive time of celebration. It's a time to look back and think of God's deliverance from Egypt. But now we've got this 30-something thousand Jews back in Jerusalem celebrating it in Jerusalem. They've got even more reason to give thanks to God because he's rescued them from Babylon and enabled them to go back to Jerusalem. So why is it, in verses 2 and 3, Daniel has been mourning for three weeks. We're not told explicitly, but I think we've got enough to know of two reasons that were involved. And the first is, in verse 12, Daniel had set his mind to gain understanding. Most obvious reference for that, what was he wanting to understand, is what he had just been shown in chapter 9. What is the future of God's people? How is all of this going to unfold? But why now? It's about two years or more since the vision of the 77. So why now? I think that gets us to the second thing. You look at the chronology of the things that are happening, and troubling Daniel at this point was the news that the work in Jerusalem had stalled. All sorts of reasons, we'll think about them in a minute. But that opposition to God's people rebuilding the temple and all of the involvement of the Persian Empire meant that here's Daniel, this 80-something-year-old man who's still in Babylon, who knows that Jeremiah has been fulfilled because there's 30-odd thousand Jews who've returned to Jerusalem, and he knows that the Persian Empire were the people who gave permission for the people to leave and rebuild the temple. He knows all of that, and yet 
they've changed their mind as an empire, and now the work has stopped. And here is Daniel saying, why, Lord? This was for your people to return to your place to give offering to you in a rebuilt temple. Why? Well, God answers Daniel's prayer with the longest vision in the book. And chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision, and we are not going to do all of them tonight. We're just going to look at the introduction, which is all chapter 10 is. An introduction that sets the scene to everything that we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12. And there are two main points. Well, one big one, really, but two points I want to show you tonight. The first is God's answer to prayer was overwhelming. God's answer to prayer was overwhelming. It's so overwhelming, in fact, you look in verse 7, that even those who didn't see the vision ran away to hide. (laughs) I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. And for Daniel himself, this final vision completely wiped him out. Track Daniel's experience through this chapter. Verse 8, he gazes transfixed. At this vision, he had no strength left. His face turned deathly pale, and he was helpless. When the uh, heavenly being starts speaking in verse 9, he's rendered unconscious. He's helped up to his hands and knees. He's, He's finally enabled to stand. And then when he's given this peek into the spiritual realm, in verse 15, he collapses again and can't speak. And we're going to get to the vision in chapters 11 and 12. We're going to see that God answers Daniel's prayer. And that's the reason that he came. In verse 14, the angel says, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Daniel's prayers would be answered. But it would utterly overwhelm him. Why do we need a chapter of God's word to say that. that. There's other things that we need to see here as well. We're going to come to those in just a minute. But why labor the point of how overwhelming this would have been for Daniel? When you think about the people in the history of the Bible who had a special revelation and a privileged insight from God, instinctively we often think that is just all blessing. Wouldn't it have been amazing if I had the same spiritual experience and insight that Jacob and Ezekiel and Daniel and Paul had? But too quickly we forget the human cost of receiving God's revelation. Jacob was left with a limp. Ezekiel was left in anguish. Daniel was completely wiped out, rendered unconscious, nearly died, and Paul was left in a thorn in his flesh. All of those blessings came at a deep personal cost. I think one of the reasons we have this chapter is to help us treasure God's word more. Super big picture. Why is the Bible so precious? It's because it's the gift of God. It is the living word of the God of heaven and earth who has given us his word so that you and I can know him and be saved in him. That's the biggest reason that the Bible is precious. But there are other reasons too, including the fact 
that this book has been given to us at great human cost. That's what Daniel experienced. He had these amazing revelations that showed him all sorts of things about the future of God's people, but it nearly cost him his life. And it's helpful for us to be reminded, lest we take this book too cheaply, that through its history, men paid a great cost in order to receive the word of God for us. God's answer to Daniel's prayer was overwhelming. But secondly, and we're going to spend all of our time here really, God's unveiling of the spiritual battle shows us that history is more complicated than we think. I couldn't make the point shorter to try and capture everything that's going on. So it will be there long enough for you to jot it down. God's unveiling of the spiritual battle shows us that history is more complicated than we think. Now, in this vision, God gives Daniel a peek behind the curtain. Not your living room curtain, not the iron curtain. The spiritual curtain that exists just at the end of your noses that separates everything that we can touch, sense, and smell from that unseen but just as real reality of the spiritual world. And God's purpose in this vision is not to baffle and overwhelm Daniel. And we can take great confidence from that this, this evening because when we read this text, it seems completely foreign to us in that sense of being unconnected to what we're used to. And it is. But the whole point of the vision is to give Daniel peace, certainty, and understanding. So before we get into the detail, know that that's God's purpose. Because it will help us know as we get into the text that it's for us to understand too. And if we're to understand all of that, we need to understand what this vision is all about. Including who is who. Now in verses 5 and 6, Daniel sees a stunningly glorious person. And although he describes him as a man, he is an extraordinary man. He's wearing linen, which in the Old Testament context would have immediately made Daniel think, this man is a priest. He has access to God. And all of the details about his appearance are meant to make us see that this being has power and glory beyond anything that you could otherwise explain. So his, his belt is of the very finest gold. His face is like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. Every part of his body speaks of power and wealth and authority. And his voice, his voice wasn't just deep and rich. It sounded like a multitude. Who was this heavenly man? Well, that's one of the many complexing questions in the book of Daniel. And for many people, this is another vision of the Lord Jesus Christ before he came into our earth. That's definitely who Daniel saw back in chapter 7. If you flip back to that vision, we were reminded, weren't we, of the Son of Man, verse 13, who approached the Ancient of Days. And we know that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the language between chapter 7 and 10 is different can't just say that they're one and the same person. But if you get to see John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, 
there are lots of similarities between Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. Revelation 1 verse 12, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was the, like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Do you see all the parallels? There's lots and lots of similarities in the description between Jesus in Revelation 1 and this person in Daniel 10. And many will think that this person in Daniel 10 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if, if that is the case, I think we would want to say that when you get to verses 10, the hand that touches Daniel, and then verses 11 to 14, the, the words that are spoken, I think we would want to say that that is a different person to the man dressed in linen in verses 5 and 6. And here's why. Verse 13. When you look in verse 13, this heavenly person in verse 13 who's speaking is struggling in a spiritual battle and needed help from another angel called Michael. Now, I struggled to think that the second person of the Godhead, who is the uncreated one and sovereign over all of heaven and earth, would struggle with another angelic being and need the help of a created angel. So, if this man in verses 5 and 6 is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think we want to say that there's another angelic being who arrives on the scene in verse 10. Or, many say that this vision, this man in verses 5 and 6, is another angel. It's a description of one of the many great and glorious angelic beings. And actually, when you get into the book of Revelation, you see a pattern, which is that of many angelic beings that you meet in the book of Revelation that are clearly not Jesus, they reflect who Jesus is. There are descriptions of these angels that describe, for instance, their very faces like lightning or the sun that are not Jesus, but they are so reflecting of his person and majesty and glory that they look like him. And it could well be that what we are seeing in verses 5 and 6 is one of these great angels who is reflecting the very majesty and power and glory of Jesus Christ. Either way, Either way, whoever this man is, the more important detail is that we recognize the impression it had on Daniel. Daniel is overwhelmed. And he is overwhelmed by this sense of the omnipotence and the all-gloriousness of God, in Sinclair Ferguson's words. This, this is this sense of just sheer wonder. And then you get maybe another heavenly being. In verse 16, this one's described as looking like a man that could well be another person who steps on into the fray. And all of these people, whether one and the same or different, all of them are starting to speak. And who says what is a question we need an answer tonight. What I want you to focus on is what they say. Because verses 13 and 14 and 20 and 21 
are some of the most amazing verses in the Bible. If these don't amaze you, I don't know what will really. We, we live in a world, especially after the Enlightenment, where we measure everything by what we can see cause and effect from, by what we can empirically gauge and be sure of. And, and the causes that we rely on, especially are those that we can measure and manipulate. And for all sorts of seasons of life, all sorts of different disciplines, that's a really good thing to do. And the same is true of history. So if you're a student of history, especially if you're a vocational historian, you rely on that very real evidence base. You examine eyewitness testimony. You look at ancient artifacts. You're trying to see that train of cause and effect in order to see what explains the passage of time. Now, Daniel could do that in his day as well. Here he is, he's weeping over the obstacles that are preventing the Jews from being able to rebuild the temple. And what does he point to and say, that's the problem? Well, he could point to some of the exiles who returned. Because some of them were a bit half-hearted and they weren't really putting a shift in. He could point to some of those who were opposing Zerubbabel, who is the one who rebuilt out of Zerubbabel, which is how I remember it. And, and Zerubbabel's got all of this opposition that's stopping him from being able to crack on with the job. And then you've got the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, having said, you can go, and in fact other people should help you, now change their mind because of the opposition and say, you've got to stop building. So <clears throat> who's Daniel looking at to see the cause and the effect, to see the problem in rebuilding the temple? Well, there's some Jews that aren't committed, there's the opposition that they're, they're being hit by, and, and there's the Persian Empire who's changed its mind. <laughs> And then the heavenly being speaks in verses 12 and 13. And he assures Daniel that Daniel's prayer was heard the moment it was said. But the angelic being couldn't get to Daniel straight away. Not for three weeks, in fact. Why? Because verse 13, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Behind all the causes and effects that Daniel could see, all of the things that were very real and impacting the rebuilding of the temple so that God's people could worship God in God's place. Behind all of that, there is an evil spirit here described as a prince who is fighting for the Persian kingdom and against the people of God. That's why there was opposition to God's people. And this battle with this Persian spirit fighting against God's people is one that Michael's drawn into. He's described as one of the chief princes in God's heavenly army. If you go to verse 21, he's described as your prince, meaning of the people of God. If you jump ahead to chapter 12 and verse 1, we're told that he's the great prince who protects your people. Again, meaning the people of God. So what God is doing to Daniel, here's Daniel trying to work out what is going on with this vision, what is going on with all of these barriers. Something in this earthly scene that I am seeing seems to not be going right. And God says, let me show you. And he just pulls the curtain back. Enough for Daniel to see something of the spiritual battle that is raging and impacting the earthly battles. 
heavenly battles are fought before earthly battles are won. Now we're going to get to what that means for us in just a minute. But think first of all of what it meant for Daniel. Daniel was overwhelmed by this whole vision. But that wasn't God's purpose in giving this vision for Daniel. God's purpose was to give him understanding, to give him peace, and to give him certainty for the future. Let me show you. Verse 12. This heavenly being came to give Daniel understanding, which is exactly what he prayed for, and that's what we're going to see as we get into chapters 11 and 12. Down in verse 19, Daniel has this wonderful word of encouragement again that we heard last week. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, you who are greatly loved. Here's this wonderful word of comfort again to tell him, God loves you. And the purpose of this vision, what, end of verse 19, is that you would have peace and be strengthened. And then, verses 14 and 21. Daniel is given this vision to give him confidence about the future. So, yes, there's a spiritual battle going on, which Daniel's almost run out of words to describe. That's true. (laughs) But how that battle ends isn't beyond God's control. That's how this angel can say, I have come to tell you the future of your people. Because God's already written the end of the story of the spiritual battle as well as the earthly experience. And you know that because of verse 21. The angel tells Daniel what is written in the book of life. Whether that's a literal book, whether it's a metaphor for God having written everything, it is that wonderful description as Jonathan prayed that God knows the end from the beginnings even in this spiritual battle, which, for Daniel, as he has this glimpse behind this curtain, Daniel can't cope with this spiritual battle. But God can. And God has not only planned every part of our earthly experience, he has also written the story for this spiritual battle that is unfolding. How will that battle end? Well, you're going to have to come back to look into chapters 11 and 12. But before we finish tonight, I want you to see how we should and how we shouldn't apply Daniel 10 today. How many of you have heard of spiritual mapping? Anybody heard of spiritual mapping? A few people. Spiritual mapping is the description um, that some people use when they try and identify the specific evil spirits at work in a particular geographical place. Trying to name the evil spirit of Whitnash or Warwick or Radford Semele. And it's a fairly recent thing. And and for people that pursue it, Daniel 10 is the proof text. Here is your example par excellence of a evil spirit who is attached to a very physical place. Here it's the prince of Persia. And we know, if you go to the end of the chapter, that the prince of Greece is going to come and join as well. So here's the proof text, proponents would say, that says we should spiritually map evil spirits. The question is, is that a biblical idea? Well, I think Daniel teaches us two clear principles. Number one, well, the whole Bible teaches us, but certainly Daniel 10. Number one, There are evil spirits. 
And those evil spirits, some at least, are specifically attached to specific places or people. But, point number two, the Bible nowhere instructs us to engage with those territorial spirits. What do we see of Daniel? Daniel doesn't engage with these spirits. He doesn't start praying against these spirits. He leaves those matters to God. And that's what we're to do too. And if we zoom out a bit further, there are two big principles that we need to bear in mind when it comes to angels and demons. The first is to be encouraged that as Christians, we are not alone in the spiritual battle against darkness. God wants us to be encouraged about the existence and the presence of angels. We're not fighting the kingdom of darkness on our own. So here's this heavenly being in verse 12 fighting for God's people. You've got Michael, who is the angel of God's people. You have the psalmist describing in Psalm 91 that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. What does the writer to the Hebrews tell us? That all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit eternal salvation. God wants us to take real comfort from the existence and the presence of angels. But secondly, we are not to become fixated on them. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians is the end goal of all things. It is that we will, all who are Christians, I should say, will judge the world and judge the angels. What does that look like? I have no idea. But it tells us that we are not to put the angels on a pedestal and to make ourselves completely fixated about them because in God's good time, we will judge and rule over the angels. So Daniel 10 is not a blueprint for spiritual mapping, but it is an encouragement to be carefully encouraged about the work of angels. Another important application is how real the spiritual battle is today. You see, we, we read passages like this in Daniel, and our instinctive reaction is, I'm really glad there aren't passages like that in the New Testament, because that would be really scary. We can just leave this in the Old Testament. Now, you work through the Old Covenant, and you see that this spiritual battle is lived out with that physical battle that so often accompanied nation against nation as God worked through the Old Covenant people against others. But today in the New Covenant era, we see the reality of this spiritual battle in our Christian lives and in our evangelism. Here's the New Testament. Here's Paul in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of this awareness of the spiritual is not just dim and distant past. Thank goodness we don't have to think about that anymore. It is still our reality and very much in our personal life as we seek to grow as Christians and in our evangelism as we long for others to become Christians. So what are we to do? We're to suit up with spiritual armor. 
which is exactly what Paul describes in Ephesians 6. And when you get to the end of all of the armor, what is it that is to go over all of it? Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That is what Daniel always did. He's a man who was so aware of the reality of that spiritual battle that he prayed and prayed and prayed, not because there's a power in and of prayer itself that any person can manipulate. The power in prayer comes from the absolute dependence upon God. That's what helps us see the link here between the old covenant experience and our new covenant experience of the spiritual battle. And finally, we know we can fully depend on God in that battle because Daniel 10 points us to Jesus. How does the spiritual battle end? How does the battle that begins in Genesis 3.15 and that gets vividly described and, and opened up to us in Daniel 10, how does that battle end? If you're with us on Good Friday, Matthew opened up Colossians to us, where Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It emboldens, it enlargens, it magnifies our vision of the cross, doesn't it? Yes, the cross is how every single person who trusts in Jesus becomes a Christian because that's where Jesus takes our sin and bears the wrath of God against it. But it's also the place where the Son of God achieved the ultimate victory against every evil force that Satan possessed. And in a sense, we're now waiting in that gap between victory won and victory displayed that Europe waited in after D-Day. Remember the story of everything that happened on those Normandy beaches? That was the moment when the great momentum of the German forces was broken. It would be 336 days until we would get to VE Day. Many more battles would be fought. Many more lives would be lost, lost between those two events. But their victory was secured on D-Day. The same is true for us as we think about what it means to be Christians. As we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment, what we are reminding ourselves is not only that our sin has been dealt with, but that Jesus has defeated all of the dark forces of the devil. That's how we can be confident that that book of truth tells us what is to happen for God's people in the end because Jesus at the cross has dealt with them forever. And our great joy is to know that as we wait, as we pray, as we serve, we're waiting for that victory to be seen. It's not in doubt. It is to be seen.